Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy or dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and then let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Have you ever been to a really good restaurant before? And I'm not talking about Outback. I used to think Outback was a really nice restaurant. But we had some really good friends who decided to take me and Carrie to a, a nice restaurant one time, uh, one that when I, I first sat down, I had to check and make sure that the prices were actually in U.S. dollars. You know what I'm talking about? The, the one where you're like, am I really in the right place? We might need to leave now. But it was a generous gift from a good friend, a, a lot like the generous gift you gave your pastors last week. And so we were very grateful for that meal. We were excited about it. Uh, and when we sat down uh, and had the meal, at the end, we were talking about it, and we said, you know, the food was great, and the company was excellent, but it was really our server, Jennifer, who made all the difference. It was the way that she cared for us all during the meal that really left an impression that this was a kind of different experience. From the beginning to the end, uh, she sat down and began to tell us, about the meat. And it wasn't just like, well, you can get like a ribeye or you can, you know, get a, a filet mignon. It was, uh, you need to know about where this meat has come from. It comes from our own personal farm where we have cows that we treat with great dignity. All the dignity do a, a cow of the excellent caliber that you are about to partake of. Uh, we fed this cow for many months and years a, a, a kind of diet that was probably better than anything you've ever eaten. It's organic free, there were no hormones. And when it came time to, to kill this cow, we like to say put down, because we did it with a kind of gentleness that I don't even think they noticed that death had happened. And once the, 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 the meat was ready, we actually cured it and, and prepared it for you over a, a long, many-day process, uh, all before we ever actually cooked it for you. And so as I looked at the glimmer in her eye and the smile on her face, I knew that she really in her heart believed that we were in the absolute best place to have a meal that celebrated friendship and life and meaning and that I was about to get about as close to the marriage feast of the Lamb as I would until Jesus Christ came back. It was all because of Jennifer, uh, the service, the way that she framed everything that was happening. She floated in and out, anticipating our every need, but never interrupted the joyful fellowship that we had. And I'll never forget that meal. See, like Jennifer, good servants can make a huge difference in a meal, and they can make a huge difference in the church as well. See, we're back in our churchology series. So far, we have talked about the offices of church member, of what it means to be an elder, which comes in the verses right before this. And this morning, we're going to be thinking uh, in 1 Timothy 3 about the biblical office of deacon, a word that literally meant to put oneself to trouble or to serve tables. But, but there's a sense in which uh, I want to remind us all as we think about deacons that we are all called to deacon, if you'll let me use it as a verb, it's used that way sometimes, it, with a little d, 
All of us are kind of called to serve as, as little D deacons. Uh, but in Acts 6, the apostle created an actual office of deacon with a big D, saying that it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. And so they, they chose seven men in Acts 6 to free them up to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And it seems like that is exactly the kind of thing that's happening in 1 Timothy 3 when Paul is outlining what it looks like to have leadership in the church. So 1 Timothy, if you don't know, is a letter from the Apostle Paul. It's written to Timothy, one of his young uh, men that he had prepared for ministry. We see him so often in the New Testament, a godly young man who pastored churches. And here he seems to be in the church in Ephesus where Timothy is serving and he writes to him concerning church life and conduct. That's sort of the overall purpose of this letter. And in 1 Timothy 3, Paul outlines the church structure for them with the office of overseers, which is the same as pastors and elders. And then the second to it is, is deacons. He does all of this before concluding, you'll notice in 1 Timothy 3.14, where he says that if, if he is delayed in coming, if Paul doesn't make it. He says, I want to just leave you with this one important statement. I want, I'm writing these things that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, I say that because I believe that that phrase that we're not looking at specifically in our section this morning actually frames at least the office of elders and deacons as right behavior in the house of God. In other words, God has not just kind of left us up to figuring out leadership in the church willy-nilly, he said, no, here's a healthy structure for what it looks like to live in a way that is honoring to God, behavior that is right in the household of God. See, good church behavior at least includes these two offices and that of membership. Now, maybe you're thinking this may help present and aspiring deacons, and I can understand why they would want to listen but why would this really be important for me as either a Christian or a non-Christian? Well, just consider this. I. Howard Marshall has a statement that I think is really helpful here. He says this in his commentary. On the whole, the qualities required are the same for both overseers and deacons. And then he continues. He says this. And are also such as would be required of any member of the Christian congregation. Did you catch that? Deacons really have a lot of the same character traits as elders do. We don't see differences really there. But not only that, all of those things that elders and deacons are called to do are really things that every Christian are called to. So as we think about these offices, we're really, in a sense, thinking about what it looks like to be a good Christian. So we're going to look at the role of deacon this morning, and we're also going to be learning something about what it means to be a Christian. Now, our big idea, if you take notes, a great thing to write down is this. It's that dignified deacons who serve faithfully, dignified deacons who serve faithfully are promised a good reputation and great assurance in Christ. A good reputation and great assurance in Christ. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, the first is this. We see that deacons must prove dignity and integrity. Deacons must prove dignity and integrity. So here Paul is kind of transitioning from the office of elder to that of deacon, saying, deacons likewise. That likewise is pointing us right back up to what he's just said about elders and their character. And he says there that they should have a dignity and integrity that is like that of elders that he just spoke about. That means that there is a kind of inner and outward life that reflects the power of the gospel. 
Now, I like the way that Paul phrases this. He says the difference between elders and deacons is not one of kind, but of function. Do you see that? It's not like you've got this holy creature, which is an elder, and then you've got like the table servants, which it doesn't really matter how they live because they're just like cleaning stuff up, right? Not, not in the house of God. I think this is an important thing to take note of. Don't miss this. God cares who serves from the lowest to the highest position in his church because they are collectively imaging God. You see that? that that's why it matters. You might say, why does it matter that a deacon have good character? It's because everyone that serves as the people of God are reflecting the character of God. Now, we see this dignity, which is outward, and integrity, which is inward. We'll start with the dignity. Notice first that deacons must be dignified in outward living. See that in verses 8 and 12. Uh, Look with me real quick at verse 8, what he says. He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. So you'll notice here that Paul is highlighting three examples that give us a kind of picture of what dignity means to him. And these are, I think, specific examples that would have been important for anyone serving in the role of deacon. And so here's how that plays out. He says, first, they shouldn't be double-tongued. In other words, it's important that they're not saying one thing to one person and then something different to someone else and maybe even conflicting statements. Second, he says they can't be in charge of the bread and wine if they're addicted to too much wine. I think that's just common sense. Third, they shouldn't be greedy for dishonest gain, especially if you consider that they would be helping care financially for widows and orphans. So you'll remember that Judas spent a lot of time with Jesus and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And it was that rich young ruler who actually walked away from Jesus because he loved his earthly treasures too much. Servants of Christ can't be greedy for dishonest gains. Deacons shouldn't have a reputation for being dishonest with money, but rather for building up the church as they build up treasures in heaven. Deacons, they also, we we find here, I believe, sort of a, a common overarching definition of what they should be is those who are trustworthy and self-giving, not self-seeking, in all of life. And you'll notice in verse 12 that that includes in their home life. So it's not just that they're one way at church and then another way at home. Notice there that deacons should be known by others literally as a, in verse 12, one woman man, just like elders. Now I need to do more research on this phrase, but when I've, I've done research in the past, what I've found striking is I believe that this phrase, a one woman man, is actually more countercultural then we realize, and it might have even been more countercultural in Ephesus than it is in Phoenix. Here's what I mean. In, Re- in Greco-Roman culture, it would have been very common to speak of a woman as a one-man woman. That was expected of women. Uh, men had kind of a double standard where that was not considered to always be as important. They weren't judged as harshly if they had relationships outside of marriage or multiple relationships And so here what we find is, is that there is this call to a fidelity for their wives that would have been 
different from and greater than what the cultural expectations would have been for them. In other words, this is not just so that they fit well into the culture of Ephesus. This is an otherworldly kind of command where Christ says, your marriage pictures the gospel, and that means that one man loves one woman till death do them part. This is a countercultural calling for deacons who were serving tables. Now, the same would be true here, not just for married, but for single deacons who should not have a reputation for getting around or seeking to be a ladies' man or those who are not protecting their eyes from pornography. Uh, Those kinds of expectations would have been for single deacons as well. But don't miss this. This standard looked more countercultural in Ephesus than it did in Phoenix. And then verse 12 adds to it, and he says they must manage their children and their own households well. Why? Well, it's because deacons should be present and engaged, not neglectful, abusive, or harsh, caring for those in their own homes. If they're going to serve in the home of God, I mean, that makes sense. That's kind of an argument from the, the lesser to the greater, right? I mean, we really shouldn't be thinking like, oh, well, I can serve well at church, but, you know, at home I can kind of let that go and maybe I need to sacrifice this for that. No, it's really an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you want to serve in the house of God with the people of God, then you need to make sure your own home and affairs are in order. That's why I think that he's calling for deacons to have a healthy home life. They should demonstrate an outward dignity in every sphere of their lives. But notice that he doesn't stop there. He says there also needs to be an internal integrity. I'm going to call it integrity, an internal dignity about the way that their hearts are working. You you see this in verse 9, this integrity. Notice that Paul is saying that grasping the gospel inwardly is not an optional amenity for deacons. Uh, Verse 9 says this, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I don't know what you think about when you think about mysteries. Um, And this idea of holding the mystery, it might sound a little bit like an invitation to kind of like grip the mist, right? Like hold a mystery, but it's mysterious, so I don't know where it is, right? It's kind of like a a show I used to love when I was was younger. I don't know why I loved it, but Unsolved Mysteries was the show that I would watch usually at nights before I went to bed, which usually would keep me up like scared to death. And the reason was, was because they would go through these cases that had never been solved. They were still mysteries. And the show would always end without telling you who did it or how it happened exactly. Which left me thinking, I wonder if that guy's still out there. Maybe around here. But it never gave you the the answer to the mystery, right? It was still mysterious, as mysterious when it began as when it ended. Well, that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of mystery. See, Paul uses mystery actually to describe God's plan of redemption that he has been doing throughout history, which was hidden in the past, but has now been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the gospel. It's not a secret anymore. It's not a mystery. See, that's not the way that the Bible speaks of mystery. He speaks it of as something that has actually been revealed. You'll notice also in verse 16 that it tells us that the mystery of the faith is also the mystery of godliness. And that mystery of godliness is not a technique, and it's not a secret, but it's God's Son. Jesus is the mystery to godliness. 
The whole Bible works towards revealing this gospel which culminates and climaxes in Christ who is God's Son. And so here what we find is a beautiful picture of the nature of what it is that our consciences are supposed to be gripping onto. Notice here that it is this internal integrity that is coming about, but it's because they grip the gospel with a clear conscience that they have that kind of integrity. In the sense that their lives match their faith. You see that clearly in verse 9. And it's not perfectly, but it's truly that they are seeking to live out what they believe. Now, you might be saying, what is this conscience that's gripping the gospel? What is that? For some of you, you might be thinking like, conscience, yeah, I know I have one of those, kind of like I know I have a spleen. I just don't think much about it until something's really wrong, right? Well, with a conscience, the conscience is something that God actually has created all humans with. We all have a conscience. Now, they say that sociopaths have no conscience, but biblically speaking, it's more likely that they have a conscience, but a seared conscience. Now, if you're a non-Christian, I think this is just a helpful place to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about. I'm not trying to make any kind of moral argument for the existence of God, but have you ever wondered where that objective guilt part of you comes from, where you want something and there's almost this other thing in you that says you shouldn't want that thing, and then when you do that thing that you have no reason to think is guilty if there is no God, why that thing makes you feel more guilty? Like, who is that thing? I think it's a conscience. You should think about that. But there's another thing here. Notice that Paul has already claimed his letter to Timothy comes from a good conscience. So Paul has already told Timothy, I have a good conscience, verse 1, 5, and 19. And elsewhere, you'll notice that Paul speaks more of the conscience. He says that you can have a strong conscience or a weak conscience. You'll notice even in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 2, that comes right after this, he is warning that some departed from the faith for doctrines of devils, and then says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So you can have a seared conscience. Now, in their book that I just got to read last week, a good book, Conscience, by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley, they, they define our conscience for us. So here, here's what a conscience is. He says a conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's a consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And it's basically your moral awareness turned back on yourself. I believe this is important for deacons and every Christian to understand. See, God gives all of us a conscience, and that's that part of us that tells us what is right and wrong. Now, now hang in close. We need to be careful not to violate our consciences. But catch this. It's important to note. You can have a clear conscience and be wrong. You can do the right thing and have it violate your conscience because your conscience is not God. God is God. So the fall broke our consciences just like so many other things that were broken about us emotionally, physically, and otherwise. And we believe things that are right. We believe that, uh, that there are things that are right that are actually wrong. And we believe that there are things that are wrong that are actually right. And that's why Justin Taylor tells us that a clear conscience is a necessary but not sufficient condition of innocence. Do you see that? We need to make sure that we understand that we need a clear conscience, but our consciences need to constantly be educated and shaped by the gospel. 
I was trying to think about how do you how do you communicate this? Because this is important for deacons and every Christian. We should all strive to have a clear conscience with hearts that take an ever-tightening, white-knuckled grip of the gospel. And I got this image. I know it's mixing analogies, but it's kind of like an anaconda eating a baby goat. Have you ever seen that? Some of you are like, I just checked in and heard something about anaconda and goat. (laughs) I believe having a good conscience and developing a good conscience in your grip of the gospel is actually like an anaconda eating a baby goat. Now, here's what I mean. We grip the gospel, right? We'll just, I'll use the Bible here, but we know what we're talking about. The gospel, tighter and tighter knowing that the only, the gospel can nourish and strengthen our whole person, including our consciences. And, and the more that we consume of the gospel, the more that it begins to shape us from the inside out, so that our inside changes, and then our actions and the shape of how we live changes. Now, have you ever seen a snake try to consume a whole goat? I did yesterday a number of times. I meant to do it once, and then it was so fascinating, I did it again and again. <laughs> fascinating thing is the mouth of the snake is actually, it begins much smaller than the size of the goat, Right? But then he opens it up and it starts to come in and and it's incredible. But once the goat is in, what's fascinating is the snake's body takes on the shape of the goat. Sometimes the goat is even wiggling around. You can see his legs kicking. See, the gospel is a lot the same way. Now, now Satan's loving this because I'm using a snake redemptively, kind of like Moses and like the stick. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. But the more of the gospel that we are taking in, the more that that gospel shapes our understanding of right and wrong, truth and error. And our decisions begin to take on the shape of the gospel more and more. See, we need the gospel to educate our consciences because, catch this, our consciences are not sovereign God is. So the more the gospel that we have in us, notice the less legalistic we will become because we know we are justified by faith alone to the glory of God alone. And by the way, when your conscience becomes more educated, you actually start to having more mature conversations as a Christian because you're not talking about what's right and wrong. You've got that because you understand God's word. You're actually able to start talking about what is best for others, what is best to bring about glory for God. And that is a much better conversation that Christians should be having than sort of mis- taken understandings of whether or not, like, you know, I'm free to have sex with whoever I want and that kind of thing. We will no longer, if we have stronger consciences, we will no longer have weak consciences that feel guilty about things like eating meat sacrificed to idols or drinking wine when the Bible doesn't condemn them. But we'll also no longer utilize our strong consciences, flaunting and flexing them around other weaker consciences to inflict harm on them or to show some kind of arrogant superiority. We will seek to keep our consciences clean by knowing God's Word better and attending uh, as many opportunities that we have to, to make our consciences better. You know, one good way to strengthen your conscience is to go to a number of the equip classes that we have. I was just in a great Sunday school class this morning going through First Second Chronicles with Dan Diffie. What a great way to help you learn more about the Word of God so that you understand God more, so that you're educating your conscience about how God thinks. Uh, We have an an E2 class that's going to be coming up this Wednesday. Great opportunity to go and to have your conscience educated so that more and more you take on the shape of the gospel. 
See, we will seek to keep our consciences clean by knowing God's word better as we are doing these things. Another great way to keep your conscience clean is to understand God's word more so that you don't feel guilty about stuff you shouldn't. You know, that frees you up. I mean, I bet some of you right now are thinking like, I wish I knew the word of God more so I didn't feel guilty all the time. Spiritual Christ-like freedom leads to obedience and a happy conscience. I mean, just ask Jesus who obeyed his Father in every way, even to the point of bearing our guilt upon the cross, catch this, without feeling guilty. (laughs) It's good stuff. See, ignoring your conscience is dangerous. It's worse than Will Robinson. I don't know if y'all have been watching like Lost in Space. I love that they redid that. And he's got this robot that anytime he's in danger, it says, danger, Will Robinson. And anytime Will like does not recognize that, It's not good for will, right? And in the same way with our consciences, we need to make sure that we are responding to them. When we don't respond to our conscience, that's how we sear or harden our conscience so that we become less and less conscious of right and wrong. See, we can even sear our consciences when the standards are wrong. You might have the wrong standards and be searing your conscience because you're ignoring them and not listening to your conscience. The answer is not to not listen to your conscience. The answer is to educate your conscience with the gospel. But I actually believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so beautiful and glorious and hopeful and life-giving that the more that we truly get a grip on the glorious grace that has been brought near to us, which has unleashed every spiritual blessing and heavenly places on us even now, Ephesians 1, the less likely we are to be tempted to sear our consciences by doing what we believe is wrong in the eyes of God, not our own eyes, because we know just how good God is and His plans for us. We need to be captivated afresh in our consciences with the glory of God. So we need deacons who model God-shaped consciences as they serve the church. And verse 10 says that they should be tested in this. I don't think that's, you know, like ASVAB or something like that. I think what they're saying is you need to just watch these folks serve and live a faithful life and see, is this a dignified person before you make them a deacon? And here's why deacons need to have a gospel-shaped conscience. This is is what I think. They are working with people who are by nature messy. Uh, That's actually a point for every sermon that I have. And when you work with people, you need to grip the gospel that grips you so that you don't join in. Join in on what? Well, things like the complaining and the gossip or the doubt in God's goodness or evidence other examples of fleshiness. See, we want deacons that exude a confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. A trust in the elders that God has given to them. A love for God's people, us. That's the kind of deacons that that we need so that we can be a healthier and healthier church. We want deacons that exude a confidence in these things. And the more that we grip the gospel, the more that we grasp it, and the better that we are equipped to serve others. Now, don't miss this. I think that whether you're a big D or a little D deacon, God cares about who serves in his house in a way that some churches don't. And I would say we're different in this, and it's intentionally so. It's not an accident. See, some churches hold to a philosophy that says that people should belong before they become. And I don't find that in the Bible. I I don't find that as a picture of the church of the living God. And and what they really mean by that is something I think like, come hang out with us. 
Don't worry if you're a Christian or not. Find a place of service and then leadership. And we're hoping that somewhere along the way, by osmosis of being around us as Christians, because we are amazing Christians, that after you have already sensed that you belong, you will, or, or that you belong, you will actually become a Christian. And I find this to fly in the face of what the Bible says. That's why we, we ask our folks to actually who serve with our church to be Christians and members of our church before they serve, because we actually believe that as you are serving with us, you are saying something about who Jesus is. And we want to make sure that you understand who Jesus is, because we care far more about who you are than what you can do for us or God. Because catch this, I I don't want to surprise any of you by this, maybe you would be surprised by this, but God doesn't actually need to be served by human hands. God is not a weak God who said, I really am having trouble holding the world up and the stars in the expanse. And I need some ant-like looking little people to help me with that. That's not our God. See, it's, we don't serve because God needs us to serve. We serve because we get to serve because of the nature of who our God is and who we are in Christ. That's why we ask folks to, to join us in this. Because take note, Paul expects servants in the house of God to have a reputation of indignity and integrity in the way they live out the gospel amongst the body of embodied people. See, serving is both a responsibility and a benefit of membership. Now, there's a second thing that we see here, if that wasn't controversial enough, and that is verse 11, where we see that women or wives of deacons should have dignity as well. Women or wives of, dignity, of uh, deacons should have dignity as well. It is on the screen, just in case I can't say it clearly. Now, verse 11 is interesting. Uh, notice that verse 11 says this. Their, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, this verse has been translated uh, in four different ways. These, these women that are spoken of. Uh, one is that women are part of the deacon body. Two is that female deacons are distinguished from male deacons. Third is that female assistants, these are female assistants to deacons. Or fourth, that they are wives of deacons. Now, I think that women deacons and deacons' wives are the strongest potential realities here. Now, just so I can clarify this problem, because you might be looking at your, your Bible and you're saying, it says they're wives. Like, that's not hard, right? But if you look in the Greek, uh, the original language, there's actually no pronoun there there. Instead, there's really just the word for woman, which is also the word for wives. So some translators added in a there with wives to explain how they were translating that text. Whereas if you look at something like the, the NRSV, uh, they will just have uh, women or women deacons likewise, uh, you know, or to be dignified. So as you look at that, you realize, okay, well, maybe this is a little bit more complicated. Well, I think um, this Greek word for wives, which is the same as women, uh, I think it should or could speak of female deacons. Now, we see examples of female deacons like with Phoebe in Romans 16.1. Uh, we also have a letter from Pliny uh, where he is uh, a non-Christian, right, a Roman official, he's writing, and he writes in Latin, and he speaks of women ministers, which is the Latin version of, like, Greek for deacon. All right, now that we're bored. Our church opts for women as deacons here. Let me just give you a few quick reasons. Uh, there might be more. It's more complex than this, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. One reason is I think that it would be strange to outline qualifications for deacons' wives 
and not elders' wives. I just think that would be very strange. And you might say, well, they're dealing with money, and so they need to be careful. And I'm like, yeah, but elders are dealing with souls, and so that's kind of important too. But just to be fair, it is interesting that the next verse does speak about male deacons again. The second point is this, that some, there is some pattern here that's the same pattern as we find in verse 8, speaking of male deacons, where it says, likewise, these women, and they need to have dignity like those male deacons do. And they give three similar descriptions of what dignity for a woman looks like. So that, that seems similar to the position. Third, and more important, is that the duty of deacons is different than that of overseers. And I think this is most important. The responsibility of overseers is pictured differently in the Bible from deacons. And it seems that that makes a big difference. You'll notice that one description that clearly sets elders apart from deacons, and really every other Christian for that matter, is that they are, in verse 2, apt to teach. And in Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 5.17, uh, Paul says that elders who rule well and teach uh, well are worthy of double honor. So ruling and teaching there are connected with this idea of someone who is an overseer or a pastor or an elder. So those are wrapped up in that. And we believe that that therefore excludes women from teaching men in the local church and from serving as elders. Why? Well, because 1 Timothy 2.12, it says women are not to teach or exercise authority over men, and elders are to teach and rule well. So deacons are those who are functionally helping with the practical and administrative concerns of the church to free up pastors to teach and pray like we see in Acts 6. And so, yes, we are very happy with women telling men within deacon functions what to do to help make that ministry run well. And we believe that women can serve as deacons here. Now, because teaching and ruling are not part of the role of deacon, uh, women can serve in these roles. Now, by the way, uh, let me just emphasize here that we do encourage women to teach other women and children here. We need mature women teaching other women. And let me just humbly confess that while we may encourage women here better than some other places, I am freshly aware that we need to do a better job of training and utilizing women's gifts of teaching here. There are many ways that we need to grow, and this is one of them. But that said, Paul in no way, please hear this, he in no way diminishes the significance of the role of serving as a deacon in the church. It is an honorable role. He pictures this as a high calling with high requirements. Now, what that means is is that women and men can serve as deacons and they can receive the same promises. Same promises that might be also given to elders. Notice third, faithful deacons are promised a good standing and great confidence. This is the promise. This is the, the benefit of serving as a deacon that Paul gives in verse 13. So notice in verse 13, you can look there with me, That here the role of deacon not only comes with responsibilities, but it comes with with promises. And these are pretty big promises. Uh, Notice in verse 13, he says this. He says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So deacons who serve well gain two things. Uh, They gain first, notice, a good standing And and second, uh, they gain a a great confidence, a good standing and a great confidence. You might be reading this and thinking to yourself, well, what what does this mean? What kind of standing and what kind of confidence? And are these things before God or before men? Those are great questions. Uh, In his commentary, George Knight is speaking of this question, 
And George Knight says the question isn't who the good standing and great confidence are before, but who they are in. And he writes this. He says, the encouragement given to deacons who serve faithfully is a good standing or or progress and confidence or, or a boldness in the sphere of faith in Christ in which they already stand. In other words, there's not like a, they're, they're stepping up to a new level of what it means to be a, Christ, a Christian. It doesn't mean that uh, in some ways uh, this is some kind of unique benefit that comes to deacons that is not available to every other Christian. No, the, the first promise here, and both of these are in the sphere of faith in Christ, this first promise of a good standing actually speaks of an observable maturing in the faith. This word for standing is actually a word that can mean steps. Uh, so in some context, it means kind of a, a maturity in the faith. In other contexts, it can mean like an advanced rank in an army. And I think what the picture here is, is that there is a kind of maturity that comes especially to deacons who are serving in these roles. As they serve, God is doing a unique kind of maturing in their lives as they are selflessly giving themselves to others. God is doing a special, unique work in them. They have taken on more of a role and more of a responsibility, and God is doing a unique work in them. I believe that's a a huge encouragement. And I believe that that maturity is something that is both outward, in the sense that people see it, the maturity, right? But it's also inward, in the sense that God really is changing and transforming them. I think that's the first promise that comes. The second promise speaks of assurance of salvation at least. Now, we don't want to get into all of what this might mean, but it's at least, most clearly, assurance of salvation. Anybody here would be grateful, just question, show of hands, for more assurance of their salvation? Anybody? We got two. Okay, three. Okay, we need to work on that. Either y'all are super confident in ways that maybe you shouldn't be. Um, you should be, uh, or maybe you're just asleep. So let's, let's come on in close. Assurance of salvation, very good thing. We all want more of it. And here what we find is, is that that is a promise that is given to these deacons. Now, this points to a greater inner sense of confidence, an inner sense of confidence in and experience of the benefits of all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, as you listen to this, you might be hearing a very faint echo of verses 8 and 9 where you have that outer dignity and that inner integrity that God is working in you. That's beginning with what you were called to do. They they notice integrity and and dignity in you, but then it's also something that God continues to do in, in a more significant way as a deacon. Don't miss this. Serving Christ and his people grows a confident faith. Serving Christ and his people grows a confident faith. If you want confidence in your faith, you need to serve the people of God. That is one of of a number of great ways to grow in your confidence of faith. But there's another thing. Neglecting serving Christ and his people leads to doubt. So this morning, if you are doubting, it could be because you are neglecting. If you're neglecting the people of God, it could be that your soul is sort of wandering from Christ and his church and your confidence in all that Christ is. So if you want to bolster that up, serve others in the context of the local church. So closing up, whether you are deking out with a big D or a little d, you look so much like Christ who Paul says in Philippians 2, that glorious hymn describing Christ. Paul says this, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition 
or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, that's what cruciform, Christ-like love looks like, a servant. And the New Testament calls us to love one another in our local church in this kind of way. So I'm just curious this morning, as you're evaluating yourself, how cruciform and Christ-like does your serving others look? Will you be inconvenienced and put out to look like Jesus? Because catch this, when we grip the gospel and the gospel grips us, we will serve in sacrificial ways like Christ who gave his life for you and me. And that should be the thing that drives us, that truth, that reality, that identity that is ours in Christ ought to drive us to love others sacrificially. It's hard. It's hard to know how to serve if you don't show up looking to serve others. We think, how do I serve? Where do I go? Like show up looking to be selfless and serving others, asking others how you can help in the moment. You don't need a, a more, to be more than a Christian to do that. You don't need to be a deacon to serve others, right? So we need help all over the places in all kinds of ways. I mean, let me just give you a couple ways. We always need help in children's ministry. Now, there's a reason that I always say that. It's because we always need help in children's ministry. And it's not just us. Every pastor I know, and I know lots of pastors, always need help in children's ministry. And so the people of God, if they're serious about seeing young children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and helping other parents share the gospel with them, will sacrifice their time, maybe their clothes. Sometimes you get puke and stuff. But, but you get more points before God for that. But we need everyone pitching in to love our children unless you are unable. Now let me explain what I mean by Able, because I think able is kind of a flexible word that some people fit lots of stuff into that shouldn't be there. Able doesn't mean that you have kids all week and you don't want to have kids on Sunday because it messes up your time with Jesus. Able doesn't mean that you don't have kids so it's not your problem. Able doesn't mean that like, you know, wow, I, I just really don't want to. I don't like it. I'm grumpy around kids. Well, you have a bigger problem. Don't be grumpy around kids. Speaking of that, we have SAF coming up. Allison is serving in that ministry and could use help, I'm sure. Help with kids, inviting kids, helping with preparing rooms. You know, she gave her week, a week of her off time, which a lot of us don't get a lot of off time, to serve children. What are you giving up to serve others? Let's joyfully serve together. We will mature before God and in our relationships one another as we do this. Now catch this. Relationships require presence and work and working together. And that can cement our lives together, especially when all done to the glory of Christ. Now, how do you serve? Well, let me just ask you some questions. Do you show up early when you serve? Because it's not just that you serve, but it's how you serve. Do you show up early? Or do you show up late and you're like, I should be super gr- grateful that I just arrived? Or do you show up early and you're like, how can I help? Do you do it happily or griping about how tired you are and how inconvenient this is? And how do you respond to upset people? Do you join in or avoid them? Or do you turn them to their hope in Christ? Do you look to encourage others as you serve? Is serving about you or Christ and his body? 
Don't miss this. Good standing and great assurance are tied both to that you serve and how you serve. Philippians 2 says Jesus humbled himself, serving as a servant, but also, it didn't stop there, that God actually exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Now hear this, that's the promise and encouragement. When we humble ourselves as servants, God promises that just as he exalted Christ, we too will be exalted on the last day with him. And that's the model that gives all deacons confidence. Now, as for our big Ds, here at Trinity, we, uh, they serve under the elders, practically, over a number of particular ministries. That's how we do it. They have like an area that they are responsible for. They recruit people to help in those areas, and we trust them as elders for overseeing those areas, and we're super grateful for them. And I don't know how like elders and churches function without good deacons. We have great deacons. In fact, we have a number of deacons. I want to ask you, I know that it's summer and like a lot are out, but let me ask those who are here. Uh, we've got Heather Shaw, who does bookstore. Are you here? You want to just stand up? Heather Shaw. Yeah, she's, our deacons are shy. Scott Schneider, our greeting ministry. Not shy. Where are you? He's probably already out greeting. There he is. Uh, we've got Natalie Viedmark, who does children's. Lynn Furphy, food. Where are you, Lynn? You've got to stand up, Lynn. Come on, Lynn. Stay up. Stay up. Please stay up, all you guys. Uh, and ladies. Uh, and then we've got Clara Yoder, who helps with member care, visits so many folks in the hospital and, and loves them and encourages them. David Egoff, you don't have to stand because you're sick, but if you can, go ahead. Fantastic. Good to see you standing, brother. Dwayne Anderson, Paige Sherrod, Julie Doris, Renee Schneider, Nancy Goodwin, Drew Lynn Gentle. All stand, could y'all all stand up? Don't be shy. Come on, Heather, stand up. Like we're, we're about to pray for you, and it doesn't count if you're not standing. So everybody stand up. <laughs> All right, very good. Now, these are folks who spend countless hours that we do not see loving us and serving us, and I am so grateful for them. Can we just give them a hand and thank them for their faithful service? And if you're wondering how do you get to serve, like, go talk to one of these people after the service and ask them, and if they don't have a way, then go to the next one. Uh, That's a great way to learn how to serve. Now, what I want to do is I just want to close in praying for these brothers and sisters and thanking them for their godly service. Let's pray together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.